things to look at. Wait till you go to the grocery store. So many choices. A very favorite Rumi poem. In the early morning hour, just before dawn, lover and beloved wake and take a drink of water. She asks, do you really love me or yourself more? Really, tell me the absolute truth. He says, there's nothing left of me. I'm like a ruby held up to the sunrise. Is it still a stone or a world made of redness? It has no resistance to sunlight. The ruby and the sunrise are one. Be courageous and discipline yourself. Completely become hearing and ear and wear this sun ruby as your earring. Work. Keep digging your well. Don't even think about getting off from work. There's water there somewhere. Submit to a daily practice. Your loyalty to that is a ring on the door. Keep knocking and the joy inside will eventually open a window and look out to see who's there. Rumi. So this poem, which is, like I said, one of my favorites, I think it's a little too loud. Does it seem that? I'm having to talk so quiet or get a little buzz. Um, It has two important elements in it that I'm going to thread tonight. One is he's talking about the mystery of the nature of being, emptiness. The ruby and the sunrise are one. There's nothing left of me. What is that about? Then he goes on in the same sentence as the ruby and the sunrise are one. And he said, and he says, um, you know, keep working. Don't give up. Submit yourself to practice. Have discipline. So these two mysterious elements, the one of how much effort or wise effort, how do we use a wise effort to recognize that which is already here, which was sort of touched on this morning in Angela's question and then came out a lot in our groups. What is the wise effort in practice? So some of you might have heard this story that um, before the Buddha was enlightened, he was practicing the various intense austerities of his time and his culture, and one of which was to, at a certain point, barely eat any food. He was down to one grain of rice a day, and he was literally starving to death. He almost died. He, the, he's so skinny in, in the various you know, pictures and statues of him that you can see, looking at the front, you can see his backbone. And just as he was getting close to dying of starvation, he was so intensely committed to liberation, he had a spontaneous memory of being a child in his father's garden. His father was the king, so it was the garden, palace garden. And he was in the beautiful, cool shade and pleasure of uh, of being under his father's rose apple tree. And it was in this very pleasant setting that he, without any effort, had entered into his first deepest meditation, just as a child. And here he was starving to death, and he remembered this. The little light goes off. And he realized, oh, this, what he called grueling penance, isn't leading to liberation. This would just lead to physical death. I'm looking for real liberation. So he became the believer of and the teacher of what's called the middle way, where 
in the one way of extreme self-denial, he realized that's not it, and the other way of extreme self-indulgence, which she'd had the opportunity from, for when he was young, as a young prince, that's not it. But he's looking now for the middle way. And through his own experience, he came to really get it, that learning to work wisely with effort in practice is one of the central tasks or challenges of the spiritual path. He named it when he, he named only eight main areas for the Eightfold Path, the way of living. One of them was wise effort. Um, he talked about effort like the strings on a lute, that if you tune you know, the guitar, the lute, if you tune it too tightly, the string will break. If you tune it too loosely, it just goes thud, you know, there's no music. So he's talking about us, that our whole spiritual journey is one of tuning, tuning. Where is it too loose? Where is it too tight? Once the Buddha was known to say, to awaken requires a heroic effort. Heroic effort. He said it's like swimming upstream against the current. You notice, <laughs> you know what he's talking about? The current, of course, is our conditioning. We're conditioned to go that away, and he's trying to tell us to go that away. So okay, the question, okay, we can understand it takes a heroic effort, but learning to work with that quality of effort is actually really tricky because effort is like fire. Fire has all this value. It can warm us and it can cook and heat and bring light. You know, we love fire. It's great. Except when it destroys. Fire can destroy. It can burn. Same with effort. It can bring warmth. It can burn. So the spiritual journey is, is like tending fire. It's tending the fire of our energy, our effort. And it's different from sitting to sitting day to day, year to year. What is the wise effort here? Um, Twenty, I don't know, five or however many years ago, long ago, when I was at um, the beginning of my practice, I was really, I mentioned this earlier about hurting my knee. I was so, somehow I was convinced that the way to liberation was just intense the macho pushing hard work, you know, that would be it. And so I was sitting there and I was hurting my back and I was hurting my knee and I was really miserable. <laughs> and I was literally um, sort of limping across the grounds of the meditation center and I saw my teacher and he came up to me. I remember this so vividly because, of course, I just was mortified that he came up to me and said this. He said, Deborah, you look so grim. <laughs> and I, I thought, yeah, he noticed. And he, he went out of his way, and I still remember this too. Um, he said, I want you to know that a sincere effort in spiritual practice does not involve struggle. You know, huh? What a concept. <laughs> really? I had no idea what he was talking about. I was completely, you know, huh? So... At that time, given the sort of cycle I'd been with, my tending that fire, I had to relax. I had to soften. I had to begin to not try to make things happen and be so attached to certain experiences, but just begin to soften and relax. There have been other times in my practice which was the opposite. Everything had gotten sort of mushy and out of focus and it was hard to even get a thread on what was the point here and you know just sort of wandering off and at those times um, there's times where the fire the energy the effort just goes so low so very low that it's not just like being tired there's nothing wrong with being tired it's being not having energy to work with the practice Um, at those times we look at how can I turn up the heat a little here? What would turn it up? So remembering um, it's, it's not the effort of struggle. The wise effort is just the effort to be present. So amazing. 
how do I turn the heat up enough to come back to that? One of the ways that we are taught is to um, inspire, re-inspire ourselves with um, by literally reflecting on what was it that I came here for? Really deep inside. Oh, was there this yearning to be free? Was there this was there once five years ago or whatever that was, this inspiration to be more loving? Or did I was I looking for a more truth, re- letting ourselves remember, oh yeah, to bring ourselves back to the energy, yeah, okay. We can inspire faith also by um, actually putting ourselves in situations like going to class, hearing talks, listening to tapes, reading books, you know, the videos. There are so many ways to get inspired by other people when you've lost your fire and you're around others who haven't, and you go, oh yeah. So that's another way that, that we're taught to uh, take responsibility for turning up the heat when it starts going low, just so we can remember that the wise effort is the effort to pay attention, to be present. The great uh, Trumpo Rinpoche, I believe you, uh, you might have mentioned him, he was one of your teachers. Of course. When he was sober. When he was sober. <laughs> Actually, when he was drunk, too. <laughs> uh, he's, a, he's definitely one of the most quotable of all it's the... Not tape. Uh, oh, yes, it is. <laughs> Everybody knows. <laughs> anyway, he's he one of... great. Yeah. And he's still the very one of the most quotable great Buddhist teachers. Um, he once said, we learn balance by falling out of balance. You know how that is. It's true in our life. It's true in our practice. We learn by falling out. So it's not like we're supposed to always be perfect and have it just right and never you know, have to adjust the energy. No, we're actually, just like everything else, we adjust it. We slip a little this way. Ah, come back here. There's a, um, from a sutra of the Buddha called The Refinement of Gold. He says, um, if from time to time the goldsmith blows on the fire and from time to time sprinkles the fire with water and from time to time examines the fire closely, the gold will become pliant workable and bright. In the same manner, a yogi devoted to higher mental training should, from time to time, give attention to the item, I love this old-fashioned language, give attention to the item of concentration, to the item of energetic effort, and to the item of equanimity. If she gives, I change that, if she gives attention to each of these her mind will become pliant, workable, and bright. So the question is, how do we give attention to the item of energetic effort? What's the way to do that in practice? We actually were sitting there, and you know, you don't do this all the time, but every once in a while, you actually ask the question, am I... um, how is my energy for practice right now? Am I sort of spacing out? Is it a little fuzzy? Have I, have I, has there been clarity? Have I known what's been going on? If it's fuzzy, if it's dull, we know, oh, I need to raise, I have to actually bring a little more energy here to pay attention. Or am I tight? Am I just struggling? Am I just getting a neck ache here? Am I just grim? Ah, my, I have to actually relax a little. I have to soften a little. And we actually occasionally check in. We look at it. I mean, it's, if, we're, if we're suffering, we also look at it. <laughs> oh, how can, I, how can I fix this? There's another reflection that we can occasionally do if it doesn't make us trip out in our head. Am I practicing in a way that's increasing a sense of a separate self? 
In other words, am I now becoming a great meditator or the world's worst meditator? Me, I'm a great meditator. You know what I mean? Am I practicing in a way that I'm not doing it right? That sort of special emphasis on the I. Or the other part of that question is, am I practicing in a way that helps me to release my identification with that sense of the separate self? And this particular uh, reflection is so mysterious. Like I said, don't get tripped out. <laughs> um, we start talking about this topic of, of selflessness or no self, and it, it often is the most mysterious um, part of the Buddhist teaching. Because, you know, often I, we talk about this, this great liberating insight of the Buddha that, that of selflessness, and people say, what are you talking about? I am clearly myself. It's me, you know. I have my life, my story, you know, my social security. Here I am. You're going to try to tell me I'm not here? Forget it. As my husband said, this is never going to fly in America. <laughs> yeah. So the, the of course is, of course we have this personal self that Robert talked about last night, this ego self, this we, we could call it the, if you wanted to, call it our, our smaller self. Of course we all have that. And, in fact, don't leave home without one. You know, <laughs> these are very important parts. We're actually responsible to this personal self. We're responsible to honor this self, to honor the personal self of others. It's not like it's a, it's a, a bad thing. It's a very useful thing. We even have to go to the trouble to cultivate a healthy personal self. It's important. It's sacred, even. It's our personal life. However, when we come to believe that that personal self, that contracted self, as Robert mentioned last night, is the sum total of who I am, we suffer. If that's all that I am, just that personality, we suffer. So a really stereotypical example here, really silly. I'm Norma, the codependent nurse. I help everybody, but nobody really loves me. I'll never be really loved. Or, or I'm Norma, the super neurosurgeon, and I am smarter than everybody. I know more. I know more than everybody else. So you, you can just feel in that. Those are roles. Those are conditioning. They're identifications, but you can just feel in it that they're not the deepest truth of our being. They're not the source of any kind of lasting happiness. They're roles, but they're not the deepest truth. And to the degree that we identify with these various roles and stories and conditionings and grasp on to these as this is me and I've got to hold on. Our life feels meaningless on a certain level. It feels disconnected. We just are afraid. It's really what Robert was saying last night. We're just afraid because we're not connecting to the source of anything that's, that can last. The amazing thing about this practice is that as we just sit here and we just pay attention to the nature of existence as it comes, just to the way thoughts and sensations and feelings arise and vanish and move, we begin in time to experience the truth for ourselves of who I am and who I am not. There's some of me that just comes and goes. It vanishes. There's something else that doesn't. And we begin to be able to rest in that more and more. Um, Some years ago, I I had this very clear inner 
guidance, uh, as in a, like a booming inner voice sort of thing, go see Punjaji now. This great, great teacher who um, is just famous for really being an extraordinary presence and having the ability to transmit some of the highest wisdom. And I have these various sensitivities and that I've talked about a little bit in here. I didn't want to go to India because I might get sick, but this voice was so clear. Okay, I'll go to I'll go to India. The huge airplane flight, this incredible train ride across India, you know, then this, this taxi ride, and then this rickshaw ride, I and mean, this is pilgrimage, you know, this huge journey to get to see the great master. So I get there, and there he is, you know, he's sitting on something about this high, you know, and there's a room much smaller than this, and we're all sort of crammed in there, and it took me three or two or three days to even get the guts up to go up, because the way you experience him, I mean, you can experience him sitting in the room, but the way that this thing that I've heard about that was so incredible happens is that you actually go up and you sit right where this is, and, and you have an interchange with him, Darsha. I was terrified. So I came all the way around the world. I had to do it. So I got my guts up and I came up here. You know, this is this great, great giant of a being who, by the way, can see right into you and knows what's going on, etc. What's he going to say? What would a great esoteric teaching be, you know? And he's twinkling at me. His eyes, looking in his eyes, was kind of like looking straight through into the universe except with little giggles and twinkles in them. Just so much love and so much space. He looks at me. He says, Deborah, relax. (laughs) 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 The great teaching. (laughs) Deborah, relax. And then he says, you're already free. And I was like, you know, oh, God, you know, I don't get it. This is way too advanced for me. I'm sort of already free, you know. It took me a few days in his presence to begin to get, you know, you get it when you're with him, what he's, what he's transmitting, what he's talking about. And you begin to get that the, the very act of the reaching the trying, the wanting, all of that efforting is actually creating a separation between yourself and this great truth you're looking for. This great truth that which you already are, which you're always pointing to. And, you know, just through grace you get when you're around him, you, you get to actually fully experience that. I'm really glad I went because soon he got old and died. And that was, I ended up having quite a lot of time with him, and it was very, very powerful. This is from um, another great teacher who I've been so, so fortunate to be with, um, Sukhne Rinpoche. I've gone to be with him in Nepal, and a wonderful teacher. He says, it's actually fine to be happy and carefree. The more carefree you are from deep within, the better practice is. Carefree means being wide open from within, not constricted. Carefree doesn't mean careless. doesn't mean that you're sloppy or that you don't care for others. It's not like you don't have compassion or you're not friendly. Carefree is being really simple from the inside. The point is to be relaxed and yet very clear. There is no need to create something by meditating, no need to achieve something. Simply be very clear, relaxed, and bright. That's easy, right? (laughs) Just simply be bright. Ah, yeah. So we listen to the teachings about effort. And we, at a certain point, we go, wait, there's a lot of contradiction here. And often the contradiction is from the very same teacher. Because at a different moment, you know, you need a different amount of effort. So the famous last words of the Buddha, as he's dying, supposedly, his last words to, his, to us, strive on unceasingly until you achieve your goal. That's effort. He's saying, go for it. Okay. 
Then you hear these other great masters, these great Dzogchen masters, great beings like Ramana Maharshi say, pass beyond all effort. Don't even get interrupted by effort. And if we listen to this, the mind can think, whoa, that's contradiction, that's, that's opposite. But the heart can feel that both of those are true. Both are true. <clears throat> Brains can't handle paradoxes, but our hearts can. <laughs> Stephen Levine, when we have tasted deeply the crystalline water of our true nature, life becomes effortless. But one of the ironies of practice is that it takes effort to be effortless. That's the paradox right there. So just like art, just like a flower, you know, you can't force it to happen. You're not going to force the flower to bloom open. You're not going to force the great piece of art. And you cannot force awakening. But what we can do is, and what our task is, is to take responsibility to put ourselves in the condition most conducive to opening can't force it to happen, but we can practice. We can go to retreats. We can live inside the precepts. We can practice generosity. All these things that we're guided to do. We can, in every form of our life, practice cultivating a mind that's more open and less clinging, less less in aversion and grasping, and more just opening. We can keep coming back to our body a thousand times a day. These are all the, the sort of like uh, the fertilizer that help the, the flower bloom when the time is ready. It takes effort to become effortless, but it's not the effort of striving. It's not the effort of trying to have a different, better experience, have a more better meditation. That's not the effort. Not the effort to try to repress certain things or even be a better person. The effort to be present with what is. With this non-judgmental awareness. And it's incredible. It's comforting. It's a relief to both discover and even to hear that when we're just present with non-judgmental awareness, Our nature, the very essence of who we are, is not only very clear, but it's naturally gentle and kind. Some people have a worry. They think, I think human nature might be naturally mean. (laughs) They look at the world and they wonder. And um, the Buddha says, don't take my word for this. Go ahead, look as deeply into yourself as you can and find out. Is your nature naturally mean? If you look deeply enough, you'll find out. Effort to be effortless. It's it's an interesting thing. As Robert was saying last night, we've been so conditioned since early childhood to reject instead of accept or to control our experience instead of allow it or to judge ourselves instead of to meet ourselves with compassion. I mean, the conditioning is so great that it takes the effort to train our mind back to its natural state of openness. It's a, it's a bizarre paradox. Effort to be effortless. There was a um, man out Yucca Valley. I was teaching a retreat, and this man came. He was in a lot of a lot of misery when he came. He'd done a number of retreats, and he, he had looked forward to the deep quiet and peace that he had found so many times at Yucca Valley. And um, he needed a break, and he sat down, and the woman right behind him had one of those hacking coughs and sneezing and coughing and sneezing and coughing. She was sick. And he came in to the first interview. He was so agitated. He said, oh, I came here for peace and quiet. And this woman is just coughing and hacking. Every time I start to get quiet, she coughs. And he said, and so instead of finding peace, what's happening is I'm getting 
more and more angry and I'm, I'm experiencing hate. He said, I can't believe I'm sitting there trying to meditate, having the most horrifying thoughts I've ever had. He said, during meta, I'm sitting there going, may you leave. <laughs> you know? And then, of course, as always, um, he then says, you know, so then I totally judge myself because I'm sitting there supposed to be meditating and what am I experiencing is ongoing hate. So, um, and he says, so I tried to stop these hateful, angry feelings. I really tried to just stop them, but I got this terrible headache. And he said, then I tried to think nice thoughts towards her, and then I got nauseous, and I hated her more. <laughs> I said, what about mindfulness? You know, remember, the practice isn't anything to do with trying to get rid of, even hate. Whoa, what a concept. What if you just, even for a few moments, open to the experience of, that you're having, and if it's anger or hate, just open. Just can you, see if you can experience it. So he went off at Yucca Valley because it's 10 days. There's, you see a different teacher every other thing. So it was several days before I saw him back again. It was the end of the retreat, actually. He comes back. He's glowing at the very end. He's glowing. He said, I finally was able to be present with hate. I mean, I finally was able to sit there and not judge it and not try to get rid of it, but actually experience this feeling. And he said it was very uncomfortable, but only for a little while. And then there was this deep, quiet peace. And he said everything got so quiet. He said the lady even got over her cold. So for like a day and a half, it was so peaceful, so quiet. Then the woman next to me got the cold. She starts hacking. And he said my very first reaction was, oh, no. And he said I noticed that. This time, though, as soon as I started having the aversion, I began practicing with it. I didn't try to get rid of it. And he said, what ended up happening was a quietness that was so big that there would be just this big open quietness, and there might be a thought that would arise and vanish, then a cough that would arise and vanish, and then a feeling, a sensation that was just coming and going in this vast openness, and then a sneeze, and she, he said, I realized I could just let it all come and I could let it all go. So for him, the wise effort was not the effort to stop hating, which one would think, yes, yeah, spiritual practice, that would be the wise effort. No, the wise effort was the effort to be present with his experience just as it was, and then everything could open. It's, it's, it's a sad, strange fact that at this time in our culture, so many, many of us in this particular, whatever you want to call us, culture that is interested in spiritual development, so many of us have some way been convinced that the wise effort to awaken is to criticize myself internally is to you know it's like somehow we believe that I could somehow slap myself into it you know what I mean if I just beat myself around a little more <laughs> then that would be the wise effort and it seems as though we're really kind of convinced of that and it's deep I mean today in a lot of the interviews um, in fact in every day a lot of the interviews that we had we keep running into this varying degrees of self-judgment and even self-loathing, hatred that comes up towards the self. And the Buddha said this beautiful statement, it applies to both nations, you know, communities, and it applies to ourselves. He said, hatred will never cease through hatred, but by love alone will it end. He said, this is a law a universal law. Hatred will not end hatred. Hating ourselves only tightens the knot of that separate self. So for most of us at this time in this culture, wise effort includes the effort to bring this quality of kindness to ourself. This um, 
story, which I know many of you have heard, true story happened out in the Midwest in a small town. This little boy lived next door to these two older people, and um, the wife, the older woman, died. And the little boy was with his mom and saw that the old man, after the funeral, was sitting out on the porch alone, uh, weeping. And this four-year-old boy, the mom told this story, she saw him go up across the grass and go over and crawl up onto his lap, the old man's lap. And a couple weeks later, the town every year has this annual thing and they give these unusual awards. And one of them includes the kindest person award. And the old man nominated the little boy and he won. So when the little boy went to get his award, the mom said, Honey, what did you say to him that day? And he said, Mama, I didn't say anything. I just helped him cry. It's just so simple. The sweetness of the um, natural heart of kindness. And we hear that, and the reason it touches us is because we all yearn, you know, to reconnect with that in ourselves and with it in each other. And wise effort in our practice is to intentionally, not as an accident, but intentionally bring that quality to ourself moment by moment. Just that basic kindness. Just, oh, Mama, I just was helping him cry. Just being with him. Nothing special. That's the most special of all. Oh, I have received so many notes about this. (laughs) I'm sorry to say to all of you who have been writing me notes, where can I get it? It isn't available, um, and I don't know where you can get it. But I'll read you a little more. (laughs) The fifth teachings of His Holiness Dengo Kensei. There should be no feeling of striving to reach some exalted goal or higher state. This simply produces something conditional or artificial that will act as an obstruction to the free flow of the mind. One should never think of oneself as sinful or worthless, but as naturally pure, perfect, lacking nothing. Wow, wouldn't that be an amazing point of view to see ourselves? So it's not the effort of pushing and striving, and judging ourself that sets us free. And in fact, the striving and the judging acts as the glue that holds the separate self in place. So we could all probably think of some moment during this retreat where there was some way that you were resisting your experience. In some way, you were tired and you were hating being tired. And you could just think for a minute and go, yeah, you could almost sense how that solidifies a sense of self, the resistance itself. And you probably have had a moment in this retreat where, for some reason, whatever it was, you just let yourself be. You just let it be known, experienced, but without resistance. And you could just almost sense how that Letting ourself be, letting our experience just be known by awareness, is, begins to naturally unfold us. The flower can bloom in its own time when we're not trying to push it around. So when we practice in this way over time, the whole... Um, story or the drama of I'm special or I'm hopeless begins to be seen or experienced in a different light. We begin to get that it's really not the deepest truth of who we are. And as we practice over time, an immense openness is discovered. Just completely clear and peaceful. Like 
ocean of blessings, ocean of silence is found. And this, this essential nature cannot be grasped, but it can be realized. Interesting. We find this vast emptiness, which at the same time that it's empty, is completely connected with everything in compassion. Hmm. What's so incredible is to know that no matter how damaged you may believe yourself to be, this essential nature can never be harmed. It can never, ever be taken away from you. At a certain point, there's just no words, just just poems, so I'll read you another one. Talking about emptiness. I saw you and became empty. This emptiness, more beautiful than existence, it obliterates existence, and yet when it comes... Existence thrives and creates more existence. To praise is to praise how one surrenders to the emptiness. Another poem that can just try to touch this mystery is from a a Christian mystic from the 13th century, Angelus Silesis. I think I can remember it because it's short, but it's really good. He says... God, whose joy and presence, I'm sorry, God, whose joy and love are present everywhere, can only come to visit you when you are not there. (laughs) Yeah, isn't that so true? Kind of, kind of get it through that poem. So we learn that the wise effort in practice is to be present in a way that helps us to gently untangle the knots of this separate self. Gently, no force. We work, as the Buddha said, untiringly. We strive untiringly to accomplish our goal And we do it in a way that's relaxed and trusting. Both are true. We discover about ease. And in this process, we eventually do have more and more direct experiences of what Punja was talking about when he said, you're already free. That what we're looking for is already inside of us. So I'll finish with this uh, poem Happiness cannot be found through great effort and willpower, but is already present in open relaxation and letting go. Don't strain yourself. There's nothing to do or undo. Wanting to grasp the ungraspable, you exhaust yourself in vain. As soon as you open and relax this tight fist of grasping, infinite space is here, open, inviting, and comfortable. Make use of this spaciousness, this freedom and natural ease. Don't search any farther. Don't go into the tangled jungle looking for the great awakened elephant who is already resting quietly at home in front of your own hearth. So let's just sit quietly for a few moments.
can open your eyes. I'll bet Robert has a poem. <clears throat> yeah. Good. It's about effort. One time when I was um, in India with uh, my first teacher, um, I had an interview with him in the garden, his garden, Rose Garden, and he's sitting there in his chair with his white turban and all dressed in white and uh, these big sunglasses on. And <laughs> I thought that was a little strange. And I wanted to tell him how unworthy I was, you know, and feeling really terrible about myself. And so I slithered into my chair next to him and I start telling him about how unworthy I am. And he looks at me, and there are those sunglasses with mirrors. <laughs> he looks at me, and I was so shocked that all I could see was myself. Right? <laughs> I actually got up and left. <laughs> okay. To just complete this. Working my way home. That's the job. It's a long time coming. Working my way home, I'm tired. Will you come to me, even though I haven't cleaned my boots and I need a shave? Send me a message if you can't come in person. Let me know that you're clocking my track and that you see the way I pull against the wind. Send me one of those wordless letters you do so well, mm. just at the last moment. I need one soon. My knees don't work anymore. Mm. They don't bend enough, and my feet are on backward. Working my way home. That's the business here. But I have to finish everything on the table before having nothing is possible. Mm. Having nothing, nothing, emptiness. That place where you play that music, the blues mixed with a sweet violin. Mm. You can afford to let me know it's all right. Send me a message. You know the kind I want. My feet are covered with chains now, and each step is full of the promise of joy. Mm. Send me a message. I'm working my way home. Mm. <clears throat> Once a very beloved teacher of mine who I hold in the highest esteem, someone was saying, oh, it's so easy for you. And he looked at them and tears were in his eyes. He said, I crawled every inch of the way. It was so incredible to hear him say that. He worked so hard. It's a mystery. Kalu Rinpoche, the great, incredible being teacher, said, We live in illusion and the appearance of things. But there is a reality. You are that reality. When you realize this, you realize you're nothing. And being nothing, you're everything. That is all. We need to be sure uh, to announce that it's, it's quite important that you come back this evening for the 9 o'clock sitting because... 8.45. We changed it. Oh, it's going to be The nine. cooks need it okay. to be 9. Because at that time, uh, Philip will be going over the procedures for closing down the tent tomorrow, getting on the road. So please be here to get those instructions. Yeah? And the only thing I would say is that, again, this is a sweet night. 
there'll be some, there's the shopping opportunities. <laughs> and then there is the unusual experience of having or getting to hear about the moving out opportunities. But to just really um, notice and use that as practice. Notice, because this is practice for your life. Notice how you can almost think, once you begin that, you're almost like on the, in the car, gone. But then bring yourself back and maintain the silence. We'll have silence in the morning. Breakfast. Silence and breakfast. What do you think? Tell you about that later. <laughs> well, we yeah, should break it together. Break it together? Yeah. Keep, keep silent for breakfast. Hang on to it as long as we can. Yeah. It's it's hard it's hard when we break it in the uh, that hall the acoustics in there are really rough and people end up walking out and lying on the ground and shaking. <laughs> anyway, so so really enjoy this evening of practice and I just want to say also that um, we were talking earlier we both felt how much sincere effort has come here and how much opening has happened here and just the difference in the sittings that's happened today. It's very beautiful, so really take advantage of this hard work you've done. Good night. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.